Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. And today on Fifth Emission, I'm speaking with Soleil Ho, our restaurant critic. Since she's joined us, I've been inundated with emails from readers who appreciate her deep level of thought and the unique cultural research she's bringing to her work. We'll discuss some of her recent reviews and how she occasionally takes on cultural issues to explore what is good and bad about restaurants in San Francisco. Soleil is also working on her own podcast called Extra Spicy with fellow food writer Justin Phillips. Extra Spicy will have celebrities, chefs, and authors discussing food and culture. We will be back with a preview of that podcast and Soleil Ho after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Soleho, welcome back to Fifth Emission. Thanks for having me. I haven't been fired yet. I'm so happy. No, you're keeping we keep coming <laughs> back to you. In fact, not only have you not been fired, but you're doing your own podcast, your podcast cheating on Fifth Emission. But we wanted to play a short trailer of the podcast that you've been working on with Justin Phillips. Do you want to set this up? Yeah. So Justin and I have a lot of opinions about food and food culture. And so we decided to make a podcast that reflects that. So we're talking to people both in the Bay Area and just nationwide who are doing really interesting things about food and their relationship to it. And in so doing, we also comment on it. We hopefully will make listeners laugh, think deep thoughts, and also maybe feel a little bit nauseous. It'll oh, be fun. that doesn't sound like a good food thing, but I can't <laughs> wait to listen to it. So let's listen to a little bit. Are you cool? Are you into food? Does the thought of ranch put you into a deep depression? Here's a cure. Extra Spicy, the new podcast by the San Francisco Chronicle, by me, the restaurant critic Soleil Ho, and Justin Phillips. Hello. By the way, I, I, am I going to... Oh, okay, never mind. I'm going to chill. I thought I was about to defend ranch just now. I'm <laughs> tripping. That might be a bad way to start it. You'll hear that and more slander weekly. What cartoon animals would be delicious to eat? I would eat that clock from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so what are we doing? What are we doing talking into these microphones in this room to each other? What's the point? I think 
talking to chefs is important. So I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews sometimes in the field. Where the idea of like French food and American food and, you know, European food is so much better. They make it sound like it's so complicated. I'm like, yeah, but other cuisines are just as complicated and have just as much art to them. Sometimes in the studio, people ask me what's the difference between being in a lab and being in a kitchen. I think the difference is I don't get a chance to eat my mistakes in lab. Influential food people, chefs that have new projects going on. My name is Chef Marty Samuelson, and right now I'm in Harlem at Red Rooster. There might be restaurant industry trends that are happening that we need to discuss. And then I found sport beans. Sport beans? Sport beans. <laughs> and then someone pointed out, I posted about this on Twitter, and someone pointed out they were literally the Senzu beans. From Dragon Ball Z. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting the food people that are significant to us in here to talk about the things that are also significant to us. So, like, what are you doing? I'm just here for the free food, honestly. (laughs) Free food and snacks? Yeah, no, this show is going to be fun. It's a lot like Fifth Mission if you rolled it in Cheeto powder and then deep fried it. That sounds delicious. That's extra spicy. That was great. I'm super excited um, that when extra spicy is going to hit all of the podcast servers um, at the Chronicle. But what I wanted to talk to you about today was um, really centered in a recent review you did about Lake Colonial, which I think is the most reader reaction I've ever received from a food (laughs) review. And it really got – when we were discussing it in our morning news meeting with all of the editors, we talked about it for like – I don't know, 15 minutes, like longer than we talk about most stories. And I I thought it would be interesting to start off about how you decide to approach reviews, particularly those that are going to go beyond the food is good or bad. What what do you say to people that you're looking to write about? So honestly, what happens is I think, okay, maybe this place might give me something, you know, um, you can't write about every single painting that you see, but some of them just hit you a certain way. And you feel you feel something deep, you feel something meaningful and poignant when you are just in front of the in front of the art, right? And so when I go to restaurants, I try not to bring too much. I don't develop my thoughts that well before I go. And so I'll go experience it if it's good or bad or mediocre, and then just try to absorb as many of the messages that are coming at me from the walls, from the service, from the menus, from the typeface on the menus. All of that stuff tells me something. And if I can cobble that together into a story, great. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just go and you're like, this is not really all that unusual or interesting. I don't have anything to say about it. Right. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you are just, it feels unfair to talk about someplace that is so bad and also just so not of note. And so I just kind of keep that to myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I, I think what's really interesting about your writing is that you've you've written some pieces that to me get to the heart of what we want to do with criticism at the Chronicle, which is um, whether or not people agree with your individual opinion about whether a place is good or bad, it should provoke discourse about some broader topic. And I always tell people if you're looking for the Chronicle to like make you just feel smug and self-important. Like I think we're (laughs) failing because it should challenge your ideas about things. But I also think it's such a departure in some of the things that we've done, particularly around food criticism, that some readers 
are like, whoa, what what's going on? And I know you've gotten these emails too. Um, I got a text from somebody that I read to you already, but it, 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 somebody said, unfortunately to me, everything she writes is ideologically driven. So I don't know how to take her critique seriously. That is probably not the first time you've heard that. What do you say to people who say, leave politics and what's going on in the world out of it? I just want to know if the food's good or bad. <laughs> well, I mean, often... I When I started this job, I got a lot of questions about what would make food criticism relevant in the age of Yelp and Google reviews and the democratization of restaurant reviewing. Um, and for me, it's good critics should be able to apply context to all of this stuff. Like we should be able to tell you the background. We should be so deep in our research and be able to tell you like why this place matters here and now. And yeah ideology is part of that. Like what kind of ideology is this restaurant partaking in? What is it trying to get us to feel and understand? Um, that is just as relevant as whether or not the food's good. If you want to know that, I will tell you that. But then there's bigger stories, more interesting stories too. Do you think part of what you're trying to do is challenge the notion of what it means to be a mainstream popular restaurant in San Francisco? I think, um, I don't know. I don't think so because there are places for – I mean, things change all the time, right? And I'm just trying to capture what that change means. Um, why are they changing the way they are? Um, what is the point of a restaurant that doesn't have any customers but has is on all the apps, for instance? Like what does that say about us here and now? Um, and, the, you know, that's in reference to my Spice of America review. I think there are so many ways – like restaurants are mirrors, they tell us so much about what we value, what the restaurateurs value, what customers might be looking for, because they're supposed to tell the future, too. Um, and so they're so rich with meaning and purpose. And being able to ferret that out is my job. Well, what the, I, I, I love that you make that point, because when I was preparing for this, I was going back and reading some of the things you wrote. And I, I reread the piece about how you are the last... <laughs> critic doing restaurants in San Francisco because other of our competitors have decided to stop their criticism. And there was a quote from the former critic of San Francisco magazine. And, and you write, though he didn't want to unfairly single out a, this particular restaurant as an example of everything that's wrong with San Francisco, Sens admitted that, admitted that he'd had a moment there. Quote, I was sitting in the open kitchen, flames leaping, watching what might have been a tech bro show off a pricey bottle of wine from the valley. And it sort of had an end of days feel to it. This massive celebration of crazy wealth around the city. And there I was eating my two ounce of Kobe beef, having taken Bart and sidestep needles to get there. I mean, does that, is that, I, I don't know. I mean, do you, I think about that quote a lot because it does seem like the end of days sort of and some of these things that we're writing where we're reconsidering basic tenets that have always been true in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I think in that way, restaurants to me, and this is my approach to restaurants, I like to think of them as texts. You know, um, every book has been written in a context. Every book reflects what the author was concerned with at the time. And in this kind of period in the Bay Area where there's so much flux, there's so much inequity, there's so much um, disparity in wealth. The restaurants are also a part of that story. Um, I don't think that is a political stance. I think it's just real. Like I said, they're, they're mirrors. And so, yes, like Josh's experience reflects that where the disparity is the story, you know, um, 
anywhere else um, in Little Rock or Vegas or New York City, if that exact restaurant were transplanted there, it would be telling a different story. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> it does. I, I, but, but you probably also see how that comes across to people as like, uh, on one hand, food writing has always been aspirational and it's like kind of an escapism. And this is like dragging it back to our <laughs> real lives. And, and why do we want to do that when it should be aspirational? So do, are you trying to balance the aspirational restaurants plus the neighborhood gyms and everything else? Yeah. I mean, I don't specifically look for stories that are controversial by any means, um, but more like what truths are they telling us? And that can take all kinds of guises. Um, they could be telling truths about just relationships or technology or just culture at large or economics, all of that stuff. And so I try not to just lean on like colonialism. I, w I wouldn't write like three in a row about that because that's just that's intense for me too. That's also boring. Yeah. After a while, you've said what you want to say about it. I would think. Mm -hmm. And as a as a critic, I want to spread out geographically too, as far as cuisine, as far as price range, all of that stuff, um, and as far as like the stories that I want to tell. It's all part of the, I guess, salad of what I'm trying to put together. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good analogy, the salad. You don't it. want a salad that's all tomatoes. So do you, when people say, oh, politics, do, <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, newspaper people are supposed to like push our politics to the side and our biases to the side. But like, obviously, um, as the daughter of a, of an immigrant, of a, of a refugee, you, you're bringing that your own ethnicity to something like your review of Le Colonial. So let's talk about that. Are To what extent do you try to put those politics and those personal experiences aside and and, and to how much is it like you're full in and that's your experience? Oh, man. Um, it can be really hard to put my politics aside because I think as a critic, my opinion is also part of that. Um, I'm supposed to write about my opinions. And I think this is maybe in philosophical thing that I have, but I think our opinions are intrinsically tied up with politics and with ideology. We don't just make them in a vacuum. Um, you know, I don't like TV show A over TV show B just because of whim. There's also all this stuff in my head that affects that. Um, and so I do my best to acknowledge it. I think that's why I spell it out. If it is playing a part, I'll tell you why. And then if you disagree, you're maybe that's not your background or whatever, then you know why. Um, I try not to hide it because I think that's more insidious and not as honest. The the review of Le Colonial, tell us, tell us the basics. What is this restaurant? Sure. Um, so it started well, – the restaurant opened 25 years ago. It's one of a few with the same name that are nationwide in Chicago, New York. I think there was one in L.A. And I think one just opened in Atlanta, actually. Um, and it's French-Vietnamese. It um, it opened at this time, like right after this restaurant called Indochine opened in New York, when French colonial romanticism was really hip. Um, there were movies that came out like uh, The Lovers, Lamont, and Indochine which were just dramatic portrayals of like 1930s Vietnam and Saigon um, with like Catherine Deneuve and like all of this very big, sweaty jungle lovemaking <laughs> stuff happening. Um, and so, you know, these restaurants have just beautiful dark stained wood. They have rattan chairs. They have ceiling fans, uh, banana trees everywhere. And yeah, I, I wanted to think about what that aesthetic meant 
as someone who couldn't relate at all. I felt like an alien in that space. Like why? why? I guess why would you want to romanticize something that was also really awful for a lot of people? It reminded me actually of other examples. Um, in Portland, there was a restaurant called Saffron Colonial, where the theme was British colonialism, literally. And they had Winston Churchill brunches. And the menu reflected all of the colonies of Great Britain. Um, and then there was a bar called La Première Plantation in Lyon, France, where it was just about the Caribbean. And the owners were quoted as saying colonialism was cool. Um, things like that, where I was just like, okay, this is a thing. This is totally a pattern. Let me identify that pattern and put it in context in this restaurant. Because I think when you pull something out of its context, you don't understand it. Um, and that was kind of the point. I wanted people to see what I saw not necessarily agree, but at least here's the history. Here are the facts. Um, and that is all coming to play here. We can't just pretend that this didn't happen. Well, it's really – I thought it was interesting because uh, I've lived here for a long time, but this restaurant has been there here longer than I have. It's been here for 20 years. And I had always thought, like, that's a strange name, but I didn't really – you know, I'm, I'm not Vietnamese. I didn't really think it was just something that entered my head and would go out of my head too. And when – I heard that you were going to review it. I started thinking about it more and I thought, this is a restaurant I don't think that would ever open in San Francisco in 2019. Um, so I'm surprised that there's one opening in, in Atlanta <laughs> this year. That kind of surprises me. Do you think that if it was a new restaurant on Valencia Street that it would be non-controversial? I don't think it I mean I think people would have noticed and at least tried to talk about it I think that wouldn't have stopped anyone um especially because it takes so much money to open a restaurant in San Francisco these days that stopping that train at that point would have been really hard um and so I mean a restaurant like Saffron Colonial opened in Portland in 2016 you know I mean that's not too far back in the past um people continue to think that it's cool People still have plantation weddings and um, African um, colonial-themed weddings. It's it's a thing that happens because we don't know our history. The the restaurant itself, I I I think that this in some ways would have I I, I almost wish that you had liked the food there <laughs> uh -huh. because I think that would have been a really interesting idea of like could something that's really good exist in this pretty offensive sort of cultural context, but you didn't like the food. Yeah, it was actually – so my husband is always willing to go out with me, and I couldn't bring him back for a second one. He refused. Wow. And he will eat anything. You didn't put that in the review. No. <laughs> uh, that would have been kind of rude, I think. But he, he felt really strongly – like he will eat anything I put in front of him. But did he not like the food or he didn't like the whole idea of the food? The food, actually. The food um, which told me something. But also, um, yeah, I was hoping it would be good. I wanted it so desperately to be good because that's a more complicated story. Right. You know, when you like something, despite what it tells you about what it thinks of you or whatever, you know, I watch a lot of bad TV, for instance, because it gives me pleasure. Um, and I would point to my review of um, La Calenda, Thomas Keller's Mexican restaurant in Yountville, as an example of like, I actually was pretty impressed, you know, and I still mentioned cultural appropriation and like, because that was an important aspect of the restaurant, but the food was good. Yeah. Also, well, I think it also gives you a, it gives you an idea of like, the food is good, but do I want to spend my money there? And we, you know, we do so many things in politics and in San Francisco, we vote with our wallets. 
And one of the one of the things I heard a lot was, well, yeah, but this restaurant has been here for so long. It's one of San Francisco's nostalgic restaurants. And it's something we talk about in the food department a lot of like, you know, there there are these restaurants and maybe they're not the best food in the world, but they are San Francisco in a way. Mm-hmm. Did that enter into your your framing of this at all, just its longevity here? Um, not really. Also because it's not a San Francisco original. So you can't really claim it in the same way as you can claim like Luca's or Swan Oyster Depot. This was a, a chain essentially that started in New York City, um, which, you know, like that, that I think that colors a little bit of like what it means. And it also, maybe people had some fondness for Trader Vic's which was in that space before. Well, that's an excellent point because that's where I was going to go next. I mean, do you feel like there is a little bit of slippery slope argument that you're on the edge of? Like if if this, if if Le Colonial, which, you know, is French-American food and it, it was an actual period of time, if that's not, uh, for lack of a better word, politically correct enough, is it okay for a white guy to open a tiki bar or is it our, our, or Thomas Keller to have a Mexican restaurant? What, where do you think, how should people think about that? And, or what would you like people to think about that? So there's a whole section in the Le Colonial Review about Formosa Cafe, which is a really old historical institution in West Hollywood in Los Angeles, which to me was very icky when I first walked in. You know, there was like red, every, like red lanterns. And then they use the what I call like the like chop suey typeface mm-hmm. in a lot of their their design. Um, the sort of cliche everywhere. Chinese typeface that. Yeah. Yeah. You can hear that like little uh, song, right? Uh, that piano song in your head as you walk in. Um, and so, okay, at first I walked in and I felt weird. But then I was walking around the space and I saw these really interesting portraits of starlets and actors um, from old Hollywood, like really, really iconic Asian actors who really put in the work in days when like you couldn't ask for good representation you were just able to take on the job so you were like the karate master the dragon lady the prostitute like all of these roles that really demeaned asian people um you know in the 30s 40s 50s um and they had a place of honor in the restaurant they had plaques talking about their achievements and their contributions to hollywood and american culture um their names were there and for me that really lifted up the experience you can have a place like that where they pay attention to the community. They really are interested in being thoughtful and educating and also acknowledging all sides of, of this experience. And so that's why I included this because I thought, you know, I don't want Lake Colonial to go away. I don't want it to just close. I never, I mean, that's not my motivation at all. I included that because there, I wanted to give them a way out. You can include thoughtful touches you can like use your brain when you're designing a place like that. You don't have to keep doing this the way you're doing it. Really think about the words. Think about the theme. Ask people. The word Le Colonial or itself. Just, yeah. Or like, yeah. you know, the, I mentioned in the, in the re- review that the copy of the restaurant talks about how it evokes the romance of, you know, the sensual French Indochina, you know, like that kind of stuff. Think about it. Don't just use the words because they sound good. That's that was sort of the point. Well, I, you know, that's really 
I, I think that's so interesting. And that's what I really appreciate about your writing on this, which is I think it provokes a dialogue on these issues that even if you are a diehard fan of this restaurant, you can kind of see where you're coming from, whether or not you choose to internalize it and do something about it um, is totally up to the reader, but it's a different point of view. And there's there was a recent controversy about the what we call the area of Berkeley that is known for a lot of uh, farm-to-table <laughs> restaurants, the gourmet ghetto, and whether that's an appropriate thing to be calling that. And and I just think words are so important, and you've really helped us understand it in a new way. And I and I really love that you said that there's a way out because it reminds me of a conversation I had with our theater critic, believe it or not, Lily Janiak, and she had reviewed Miss Saigon mm-hmm. and hated it and said, this is terrible and we deserve better and it's the worst. Basically, there was no redeeming of this. And we had a long conversation about all of the racist musicals of the past because goodness <laughs> right. knows there are many. And at what point can we never enjoy something and will it become a museum piece that's just shelved and never seen anymore? So I, I like your idea that something can be redeemed um, in this process. I like to be optimistic. (laughs) You are very optimistic. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about was your piece on climate change, because it's another one that sort of brings the politics of what we were covering in the Chronicle and the news pages together with how we decide to eat. What, what What do you think about when you think about climate change in the restaurants? Oh, um... I've been mulling over the question of what the future of restaurants might be. Um, You know, if I have the, if by some chance I end up in this job for 30 years like Michael, what kinds of restaurants will I be seeing at the end of that? Restaurants are in crisis right now. You know, there was just a huge meeting at City Hall over the future of restaurants, like the crises of housing and pay and rent and all of these things coalescing to make it a lot harder to own a place here and run it efficiently. So, in the future, when we have growing resource scarcity, um, you know, when when the temperature rises and water is harder to find, um, workers are harder to find, all of this stuff happens, will we be able to continue to have a French laundry or, um, or a quince or like a colonial? Like, are we going to be able to kind of hoard these resources in the same way and have luxury in the same way? Is that even going to be a question when we're all like Mad Max out in the hills, <laughs> you know? Um, and on the day I wrote that newsletter, it was the day of the climate strike. Um, I saw people marching on the street as I was going into work and just I was thinking about how to – because we were just doing all this great climate coverage at the Chronicle too in the week leading up to that. How do I bring that to what I was talking about? You know, the problem with – Climate change, I think, is sometimes it just seems so overwhelming and so scary and also so uncertain in ways. And bringing it back to something we do every day, which is eating, (laughs) I think that's a really powerful statement and a a new way of reaching people and keeping everyone from becoming inured to the future that's inevitably before us. Yeah. I mean, I think about it a lot as I'm going around the Bay Area um, in cars, eating food that's been flown in to, you know, to the U.S. from parts unknown. And, you know, the impact of that, the impact of one dinner at um, at the Meadowood, you know, what is that? And how do we make sense of that? Yeah, I think about that a lot, especially because um, there are people 
you know, people like Tejal Rao at the New York Times, who was the their California critic, she wrote this really interesting piece about going around Napa to all of the Michelin-starred restaurants and just processing luxury and what that means. Um, she called it kind of, or at least the the copy editor who made the heading um, called it boring or dull. Um, but she made a comment about how um, when she was going around to these restaurants, she felt like she was an alien in a spaceship orbiting around a burning planet. And I think that might, I mean, that gave me a lot of sad feelings. It's very evocative. Mm-hmm. So, Soleil, what what is the next thing you want to tackle in your criticism? <laughs> oh, man. Food as art, I think, which is a very basic thing, right? Um, but there are quite a few restaurants in town that engage with food as artwork, um, sometimes in more pat conventional ways and sometimes more subtly. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to talk to Charles, our art critic, about all of this stuff and um, hopefully come to an answer of whether we can consider food as part of the art world um, at large. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. We'll look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you to restaurant critic Soleil Ho for being with us today. You can sign up for her email newsletter at sfchronicle.com backslash newsletters. Thank you also to Karen Creighton for producing this episode, and thanks to everybody who listened. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.